Good morning and welcome back to another Meet Kevin Report. We are coming to you from a beautiful boardroom and I am anything but bored because we have plenty of beautiful things to talk about today. All right, so let's get started. First thing I want to look at, five-year break-evens and down at 236, pretty much in line with yesterday, financial conditions, index, Goldman Sachs sitting at 99.72, also roughly in line with our figures yesterday. Today, we are looking at uh, the 10 year or the uh, 10 year treasury, uh, much like yesterday, at uh, pretty low levels, levels that we haven't seen this low in over six months. We're at 3.281. Uh, this is quite substantially low. Uh, now, that should help us see a reduction in some real estate pricing, which would be fantastic. Uh, or, uh, Sorry, a reduction in some mortgage rates for real estate, which could be that uh, the beginning of that floor being created under real estate prices. I've regularly been saying that my goal is once the 10-year treasury falls below about 2.75, probably a sign that we're getting close to buy time. I think we are getting closer to that buy time. Uh, however, I, I still think we have a single risk factor. I mean, I suppose we have two risk factors left. Uh, one big factor left is, uh, are we going to see a surge in inventory? So far, that has not been the case, though generally inventory does not surge until April and May. So TBD. And so far, we are not yet seeing that. Uh, and then, of course, would inflation end up proving to be sticky, leading rates to go right back up again? We'll see. Hopefully not. It seems like the market is much more concerned today with recessionary woes than uh, then, then basically uh, inflation sticking around for too much longer, which is a fantastic thing on one hand, because we know that the one thing holding this Federal Reserve back is inflation. That's it. There would be no Fed hiking cycle if there were no inflation. And I think that is extremely important to remember as we go through the videos of the day. No inflation means no Fed rate hikes. Simple. It also means no high rates. <laughs> All right, let's go ahead and hit some uh, some of the uh, topics that we have to talk about today. Uh, we've got a few. We've got both politics and, um, and of course, uh, multiple different uh, topics on the actual economy. So we'll go ahead and sort of mix these up a little bit and do these in various different ways. Uh, first, what I'm going to do is I will talk about Ukraine. Then we'll talk about the J.P. Morgan recession. Then we'll talk about uh, Trump. And then we'll get into the... Uh, uh, supply uh, chain, the new supply chain issue. This is kind of an interesting one. So we'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, hopefully everything sounds and looks okay. I set up a little mobile studio here. We've got two beautiful lights. We've got beautiful camera that's a little wobbly right now. We've got a beautiful microphone and a beautiful cup of coffee that I got for free at the front desk. They were so nice because the coffee shop isn't even open yet. Mm. Yes, yes. All right. Very well. That's about my first sip of coffee this morning, too. <laughs> I'm kind of dying on the inside. All right, folks, <clears throat> let's get started. Uh, okay, first we'll start with Russia, Russia, Russia. Stand by. Stand by for Russia, Russia, Russia. Russia, Russia, Russia. Mm -hmm. Okay. Where are you? Here we go. Got him. All right. 
Well, folks, the stakes are rising again in Russia. Not only are passports are now being confiscated from officials within Russia to prevent defections, as reported by the Financial Times. This is clearly a sign that at least some within the Russian uh, uh leadership are worried that underlings might decide, you know what, I've had enough. It's time to leave. Apparently, there is so much fear, by the way, of not just defections, but potential sabotage within the actual country, that now uh, there is a report circulating by The Independent that, uh, take a look at this, Putin is potentially hiding, uh, that is uh, the wrong screen. There we go. Hold on. There we go. That's the screen I want. And we're going to do it. No, no. One of these buttons will work. Dang it. <laughs> Hold on. There is a way to do this. Uh, darn. There we go. That looks better. Can I make it? Yeah. Uh, no, I can't figure out which button. It ah, I got it. <laughs> Sorry for that delay there. Uh, okay. There, there we go. Look at that. The Independent is now reporting that the Kremlin is literally creating replica offices to help avoid the potential assassination of Vladimir Putin. But this segment is not only going to be about Russia freaking out, it is also about Ukraine and the suggestion they make to being willing to negotiate again, but also the threat of World War III, so a lot to cover. First, take a look at this. Vladimir Putin apparently installs perfect replicas of his Kremlin office to avoid assassination attempts, a former bodyguard of the Russian president has said. That Russian president, or, or sorry, that former bodyguard, by the way, a 35-year-old served as an engineer in the Federal Guard Service, uh, the uh, Presidential Communications Unit, and said he has fled Russia over the war in Ukraine. So he's already gone, and now he's leaking intelligence, essentially. Although, is it still considered a leak if you're not an insider? But anyway, apparently leaking insight that Vladimir Putin has perfect replicas of his office. He's installed these replicas in order to confuse foreign intelligence. So there are no assassination attempts or, I suppose, no successful assassination attempts. This is the first attempt to confuse a foreign intelligence so that there are no assassin attempt, uh, assassination attempts, uh, this uh, individual told uh, opposition groups. I highly doubt that, by the way. I highly doubt this is the first attempt to confuse foreign intelligence. Maybe this is just the one they were willing to, quote-unquote, leak. I have found that most things in politics that get leaked, by the way, are almost intentionally leaked. Because that way you could say, oh, uh, we didn't mean to reveal that, but it still gets revealed anyway. Oh, no, our uh, uh, one tool to disguise the president has been leaked. Oh, no, whatever will we do? <laughs> uh, but uh, it is being used, at least over here, as, as a way of looking at potential some uh, uh, anti-Russian propaganda to say that the, the Russians are losing it. Uh, after all, I mean, they did arrest the uh, editor, one of the writers for the Wall Street Journal uh, the day after he published a piece talking about how the Russian economy was starting to fail, that they're running out of money. And not only are they running out of money, but that their the currency their currency has been devalued by over 20%. And get this, in a report just yesterday by the Financial Times, we find that Russia has maybe two to six months left of parts for their aircraft. Now that's scary. 
And I'm not just talking about military aircraft. I'm talking about commercial aircraft. See, commercial aircraft, which 97% of the aircraft flying in Russia used by Russian companies like Aeroflot, 97% of them are using Western machinery. In other words, Western aircraft, whether those are Brazilian, uh, uh, European, or American, Airbus, uh, Boeing, Embraer, whatever. These companies provide software updates and parts for planes. And let me tell you, as a jet owner, there is nothing that needs more parts and more maintenance and more updates and more manuals than a freaking jet. It's really expensive. And if you stop maintaining the darn thing, the birds start becoming inoperable. Not because they can't fly, but because you shouldn't fly them because so much crap is wrong with them. So then you just park them at a hangar and you start having less planes that you can actually fly. In fact, there are these classifications for Russian planes, these classifications actually for all planes, for uh, inspections that planes have to undergo. And we have some stats on uh, the Russian numbers. The, uh, there is a C-check. A C-check is to be conducted every two years. It is a structural check of the plane. There are 159 Boeing and Airbuses due for C-checks in 2023. There is a Delta check that is due every 10 years. It is a major inspection. It is probably the largest inspection for a plane every 10 years. Uh, it basically goes through every piece of the plane to check for corrosion. And uh, there are 85 planes in Russia with D-checks due. Recently in December, a CEO of the Aeroflot Russian Airlines PJSC said they have two to six months of parts left and they're slowly just taking planes out of service. So Russia is literally crumbling from the inside out uh, as this war is progressing. Uh, but not only uh, do we have the, uh, this, uh, this Russian crumbling, uh, but of course, we have more lashing out by Vladimir Putin, suggesting that, well, uh, the U.S. not supported the revolution in Ukraine in 2014. We wouldn't be in this situation. So in other words, <clears throat> this harkens all the way back to the days of the Obama administration and when Russia first invaded Crimea. Now, this starts scratching, uh, leading us to want to at least scratch our heads about the potential nuclear perils that we now face. We're going to talk about this in just a moment. But first, we have to remember that, wait a second, wait a second. What is Ukraine suggesting right now? Ukraine is suggesting, hey, you know what? We are willing to negotiate with Russia, but we're only willing to negotiate with Russia once again uh, which we have not negotiated or attempted to negotiate with Russia since last April. It has literally been a year since they have tried to negotiate with Russia, which that's frustrating because it suggests there's literally no even attempt at peace talks right now, which is scary because as there are no attempts of peace talks, World War III and a nuclear World War III is coming closer and closer and closer. It's absolutely ridiculous. So what is Ukraine saying right now? Well, Ukraine is saying, hey, 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 we will gladly negotiate with Russia right after we take you, uh, uh, Crimea back. Yes, I kid you not. That is what Ukraine said today from Kyiv. Military officials in Kyiv, Kiev, however you want to say it, today said, we will gladly negotiate with Russia after we take Ukraine, uh, uh, Crimea back. Well, come on, folks. 
that is a big ask right there, first of all, not, not necessarily a big ask in negotiations. I mean, that certainly could be considered a big ask in negotiations. But you're basically saying, we're going to take all the 10 tanks we have. They have more. I'm being facetious because we're waiting for more tanks to arrive from Poland and Germany, and they're arriving very slowly in the United Kingdom. We're going to take these tanks we have, and we're going to go try to plow through Crimea to take it back, as if Russia's not going to be able to substantially fight back in Crimea. It is a very big ask to say, oh, we'll be willing to negotiate as soon as we take Crimea. I mean, hey, you know what? Look, if they could take Crimea back and then they can negotiate with Russia and Russia takes over uh, or Russia gives up rather and negotiates, fine, then you are right. I just think you've set a very, very high bar to being willing to negotiate again. And unfortunately, that leads us down the path of potentially nuclear warfare, which we're going to talk about that in Finland in just a moment. But I'd like to remind you of this chart right here. What country provides the most aid to Ukraine? Is it the not country of the European Union, given that is a union of many different countries? Or is it the United States? Oh, that's right. It's the United States, providing over 78, we're probably well over $80 billion now in either humanitarian, direct financial, or military aid to Ukraine, which is more than twice uh, what the European Union has provided here are some of the examples of the arsenal that we have provided. Patriot missiles, javelins, stinger missiles, anti-aircraft missiles, howitzers, explosive drones, Phoenix Ghost drones, Bradleys, uh, Harpoon coastal defense systems, ground support vehicles, including 1,700 Humvees. This is from the Council on Foreign Relations. This is a lot of spending. Now, in fairness, as a percentage of GDP... The countries most near to the conflict are investing the most into this. Uh, that includes Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland. Uh, in fairness, we want to mention that. Now, what about this threat of nuclear warfare? And uh, what does all of it have to do with potentially, uh, well, um, the rise of Finland? Finland, after all, just joined NATO. Uh, that's a little bit of a oopsie doopsies uh, because we're basically telling Putin, hey, not only are we unwilling to negotiate with you, but we don't really care if we have to confront nuclear peril as you potentially move more nuclear weapons into Belarus. You've already abandoned the START Treaty. We're going back to the Cold War era. We're going back to the Cuban Missile Crisis, where basically you are now pointing strategic nuclear weapons from Belarus, potentially at Poland. Okay, it's a problem. It's a risk and a danger. Not only that, but look at this. Here's a piece right here. Finland joins NATO. Na Finland officially becomes the 31st member of the uh, North Atlantic Treaty Organization on Tuesday, marking a major shift in the security landscape in Northeastern Europe that adds some 830 miles to the alliance uh, in, in front with Russia. Now, the problem with this is now uh, we have Russia, even more pissed, suggesting that they're potentially going to scale up forces near Finland if Finland ends up putting, or NATO, ends up putting any troops and equipment on the border of Russia. Now, remember this. You could take a train, a very short train, from St. Petersburg to Finland. You start getting NATO troops put on the edge of Finland looking into Russia. Russia's going to feel pretty dang threatened. This is one of the reasons they've started moving nuclear weapons, strategic weapons, into Belarus. 
as an attempt to try to deter exactly this type of NATO expansion. Well, the NATO expansion has happened anyway. Some quotes here from NATO or from rather Russia's deputy foreign minister. We will strengthen our military capabilities in the West and Northwest if members of NATO deploy forces and equipment on Finnish territory. Yeah, I don't even know what accent that is. Anyway, this is, this is exactly the reason why you need to get life insurance in as almost five minutes paid promotion. Prior to Tuesday, Russia shared about a 755 miles of land border with five NATO members. Finland's ascension more than doubles the border with Russia. NATO's border with Russia has now been doubled. Think about that. Obviously, uh, this is deemed to be good for uh, Finland. Uh, re remember that an attack on one is an attack on all. Uh, we had a, a scare once as uh, a stray missile accidentally fell in the Polish territory and Article 4 was invoked. Uh, to evaluate whether or not this was actually a violation of potentially Article 5. The Finnish Defense Force also operates weapon systems like other NATO members, including F-18 fighter jets, German-designed Leopard battle tanks, K-9 howitzers, uh, amongst other weapons. There are obviously three ways Finland benefits here, reserve forces, tech access, and artillery forces. Artillery forces being the some of the largest in Europe over in Finland, with some 1,500 artillery weapons uh, sitting in Finland. Uh, Finland also has about 900,000 reservists they can muster up, wartime strength of about 200,000 standing troops. The mindset here is that Sweden is obviously next to join. Uh, that is uh, uh, then, of course, going to lead to thoughts that Turkey and Hungary might potentially end up joining. Uh, this kind of expansion is likely to continue pushing the following right here, which we talk about via the foreign affairs article confronting the nuclear peril. And I'm not going to go through this entire piece because part of it, they talk about implementing global fail-saves to prevent catastrophe. I, I'm saying that up front. Because the argument of this article is the reason we should be worried about Russian expansion of their desire to uh, uh, continue to promote uh, uh, the deployment of, uh, or should I say, the, the positioning of nuclear weapons is the potential for an accident. Look, Vladimir Putin has already announced that short-range tactical nukes are going to Belarus. China is expanding its nuclear weapons program. On and, and keep in mind, Russia's got like 5,900 warheads. Uh, that might be as much as 6,000 now. The United States has maybe around 5,400, 5,500. So Russia technically is slightly more than ours. I, I think ours are probably of better quality and we have probably many more functional. But China only has 300. But all of this is urging a lot of countries to expand the proliferation of nukes not reduce. We're supposed to be under nuclear non-proliferation agreements, which means non-expansion agreements. We won't build more nukes. Well, now everybody's like, well, Russia's playing with their nukes, so we want to play with our nukes as well. This is obviously a problem, especially since conversations between Moscow and Russia are basically at zero. Dialogue is basically frozen. That's a problem. It's a problem because, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're supposed to be trying to implement diplomacy, not just fighting to try to end this war. Well, so far, there's basically no diplomacy. That's a fancy word, by the way, for talking your way out of a crisis. 
There's a growing danger that nuclear weapons could be used based on faulty judgment, false warnings of attack, or other miscalculation aided by cyber attacks. And this is a global threat. Foreign Affairs magazine is basically telling us the reason every American and every individual in the world should be nervous about the expansion and proliferation of nuclear weapons is not necessarily because we actually think Putin is going to have the balls to use a nuclear weapon or that Xi Jinping is going to do it or that Biden is going to do it. It's actually that what if somebody somehow cyber attacks and somehow impersonates uh, a leader through artificial intelligence, uh, you know, generated video, generated voice, uh, combined with cyber attacks to potentially lead uh, a Minutemen uh, who are, are on standby to launch nuclear weapons, to essentially launch nuclear weapons. Okay, that is the fear. That is why Foreign Affairs is talking about figuring out how can we have fail-safes to prevent this kind of disaster. This is bad. It's very, very bad. Okay, we do not want uh, this sort of expansion because remember... The available strategies to reduce the nuclear threat uh, have been built since the Cuban Missile Crisis. But unfortunately, those continue to close. And it becomes hard to imagine, says Foreign Affairs magazine, that a new treaty on nuclear arms can be negotiated between the United States and Russia. Unrestricted nuclear competition between Washington and Moscow will now overlap not only with China's expanding nuclear arsenal, but growing threats from North Korea and Iran and also be compounded by those of India and Pakistan, both also nuclear-armed countries, to advance their capabilities, even while some U.S. allies consider whether to acquire their own. Remember, a lot of countries in Europe say, though they don't want nukes anymore. But now, all of a sudden, maybe people want nukes. It's a problem. It's a big problem. And if the world is going to survive, Every nuclear-armed country has to work to strengthen its defenses against those cyber threats we talked about. The problem is, what if we don't? And what if that cyber attack happens? Listen to this. A number of factors have contributed to heightened nuclear blunder risks, including faster and more powerful delivery systems. In other words, these, these missiles can fly faster than ever before. The rise of cyber threats, and the dependence on launch systems uh, and digital technologies that might be dated, as well as even if we have advanced digital technologies uh, uh, for launch systems, what if the other countries don't? It's a disaster. The Biden administration has given a priority to nuclear security, uh, uh, committing to a fail-safe review in October of 2022. But what about the other countries? That's the question. What's everybody else going to do? But again, folks, it's not just this. Let's hop on over to, what do we have here? Uh, we have Xi Jinping meeting with uh, Emmanuel Macron of France. And there's this idea that maybe Emmanuel Macron, who's landed with, this is the French president, who's landed in Beijing, hopefully he doesn't talk about social security uh, or the retirement age going up in Beijing. He might cause some riots. That might be too soon to joke about. Uh, but anyway, uh, in Beijing, he's landed to talk to Xi Jinping. There's this idea that Macron might be willing to talk to Xi Jinping uh, about uh, the cooperation with Russia 
uh, and maybe urge Xi Jinping to make it clear that China is not going to supply lethal weapons to Russia. Uh, I, I don't know if he hasn't realized this yet, but it's too late for that. China has already been delivering lethal weapons to Russia. So it's too late to urge China not to do that. I, I'm, I'm unclear if, if China has uh, or if uh, the French president has missed uh, that boat. Uh, but anyway, this shows you some of the concerns around rising threats, not only around nuclear war, but also around the rising threat that the prices for the programs on building your wealth may be going up. Well, actually will be going up on April 12th, maybe going up soon, uh, very soon in, in your case. That is on the 12th, we'll be seeing the prices for the programs on building your wealth going up again. You can now use buy now, pay later to join them. You can go to meetkevin.com to see all about them. Uh, you can also scroll down to see my affiliates or sponsors, uh, including short form or life insurance or free stocks. And of course, uh, you can use buy now, pay later now to join the programs of building growth. Right now, we are about at about 33% of individuals who are signing up are using uh, buy now, pay later to sign up uh, for the programs on uh, building growth. It's lifetime access, a link down below, and we'd love to see you there. But of course, this threat of a nuclear conflict is uh, very concerning. Uh, I personally believe that we, you know... I, I hate to say this because I don't want to sound political, but let me just put it this way. There, there's, there is one person who is making it absolutely clear that we need to do everything in our power to negotiate with Putin and Zelensky as soon as possible. And like him or not, that person's name is Donald Trump. That person is – I'm not saying I would vote for them in, a, in the next election. I'm just simply saying they are the ones – that person is pounding the table – begging for negotiation. And so far, what do we have? China pretending to negotiate. Macron's not going to get anything done. Biden's not doing anything. All we're doing is sending more money and more weapons to Ukraine and uh, basically joining more people into, uh, into NATO, while at the same time, Putin's worried about getting assassinated in his own Kremlin, so he's making replica offices and sending more nukes to various different areas like Belarus. To me, that's scary. I wish we had more people waking up to the real threat of World War III and waking up and demanding a negotiated settlement as soon as possible. What's the point of holding on to every inch of your damn land if it is now a badland, a wasteland, leveled, worthless, a Chernobyl? There's no point. Give up some of it. Negotiate something. Give Russia a buffer. End the death and destruction. Land is not worth people dying, especially if that land is going to be devastated anyway. It's stupid. It needs to end. Anyway, that's my take on this uh, Ukrainian disaster. All right, next up. Let's take a listen uh, a little bit here. Uh, getting too angry here. Let's get a, a take a listen over here to what potentially she and she has to say. Stand by for she and she. That we're in the middle or end stages of wringing out some of the effects of, of all that easy money. And we know what happens right. when you stay at zero. Middle, middle stage, not, not end. And this we're in the middle be, stage. This could be the tougher 
part ahead. But do you think disinflation is, is already here? Yes. Like, well, disinflation's yes. happening, but disinflation's happening because the economy has already slowed down a lot, and we're probably on the verge of at least a small recession. Yes. So if inflation is still above the Fed's target, if it's two and a half, three percent. Oh, why would you pinwheel? During a weak economy, you very much still have an inflation problem. We argue, Andrew, what, what do you think? It's still 5%? I think it's five-ish. Maybe right high fours. Yeah, high fours. Right, right this moment. Headed yes. to where? Down from nine, headed to probably below, just, just slightly below three, but in Heading a below three recession. When? Is that it? 12 months I, I, I think in 2024, you'll see below three, but I think by late this year, early next year, we will be in a small recession. Small. Uh, below average, uh, I do think the labor market holds up relatively well compared to past recessions. It lags. Uh, it will lag a little longer than usual, and the damage will be a little less than usual at the labor market. But we're already seeing, especially with the credit crunch that has happened with the banks that we just well, talked about. Then we've seen the, the Fed shouldn't raise any more then. So no, that should be well, good. The, the, that I, well, no, I, see, that's the thing. I they think still the Fed, might? Yeah. The, the, then they're wrong. It's not a mistake if it's being done deliberately. And I think we're at the stage where the Fed knows that a small recession is probably necessary All to right, so this inflation. What does problem. that mean for stocks then? It's not good. It's a, it's a big challenge. <laughs> and we are cautious. And there are spots that we, you know, we'd recommend healthcare, um, the communications sector. We thought banks would be a good place for this year, but now they're cost of capital. Why is it, if, if it's a deliberate move that makes sense for the Fed to slow things down, why do they still need to slow things down if, if we're going to, to below 3% anyway? Why would you still hurt demand if you already basically accomplished what because you needed to do? Because the target of inflation is 2 or 2, 2.5%. Two you're not making a very good case for, for what the, the Fed bases its decisions on. I think the Fed bases its decisions on what policy is necessary to hit that target and to hit that target within a reasonable amount of time. And inflation being this high for, for two years now, even though it's, it's on its way down, it, on its own, it's on its way down, even if the Fed doesn't move. It, 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 from terribly high levels, it's on its way down. It's still well above its target. And I believe the, the next leg is really just recession driven. So, so that's a cyclical decline in inflation. Just like you're seeing a cyclical decline in interest rates, it's not clear what inflation is going to be over the next several years or even real interest rates over the next several years. So estimates, earnings estimates for 2023 are now down significantly, but for 2024, they're still pretty high, up 12 percent. Yeah. You think those have to come down? Those definitely have to come down, and that's the usual case. Earnings estimates have been grinding downward. I think during the earnings season that's a, that will start in the next couple of weeks, banks will take down their their or guidance for the year, given that their cost of capital, their deposits, their debt, their cost of equity, but especially the cost of deposits has just surged. Uh, they will take down their earnings estimates. There is a credit crunch. That will affect things like investment spending, even inventory, greater inventory liquidation. This is why I think a small recession on the good side of the economy is in progress, a little bit more to go. It will relieve inflation, but it leaves the question, what will service and wage inflation be over the next several years. Productivity's been poor. It suggests the inflation problem's still with us. All right, David Bianco, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Coming up, uh, the death. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, it looked like uh, that was a little bit choppy. Uh, hopefully the audio was okay on the CNBC part. It doesn't seem like my part is choppy, which I think is very interesting. Uh, but maybe if somebody can give me a little bit of comment there, it looks like 
Uh, just looking at it, the CNBC part was choppy. Uh, but again, looks like the audio was okay for it. But anyway, um, I might have to move to a different area. Even though I'm plugged into Ethernet, you would think it would be okay. But uh, it is not. <laughs> All right. So um, interesting comment there on uh, potentially a shallow uh, recession. I mean, that's that's not – I mean, nothing terribly groundbreaking there in that uh, CNBC chat there. I uh, wonder if I can lower the quality on CNBC now. Uh, odd. Okay. All right. So uh, next topic that we go on to talk about is I'd like to talk about the uh, J.P. Morgan uh, argument of recession. So we'll close this. Um, we'll leave that there for a moment. Okay, good. So uh, audio, I'm hoping, is okay. Hopefully everything sounds okay. Uh, if somebody could give me a heads up, that would be nice. But I uh, am just going to continue by making the assumption that everything is fine. Let's do this little adjustment here. Uh, good old traveling makes a studio a little bit more entertaining. Audio is great. Okay, fantastic. Thank you very much. Okay, next. <clears throat> JP Morgan. This this should be a fun one. Actually, this should be a very, very entertaining piece. All right, here we go. <clears throat> no, yeah, I etherneted in. I actually would ref I refuse to use Wi-Fi, so I find I just walk around the hotel until I find Ethernet. I technically have a hundred up and a hundred down right now, but um, yeah, that CNBC stream was not that uh, that throughput was not very good. But it looks like this is okay, so I'll stick with this. Okay, all right, here we go. Let's pull this. Oh yeah, here it is. And uh, is it going to be this one? No, this one, this one. Okay, good. Well, folks, the JP Morgan recession argument is out. They are going to give us a breakdown of whether they think this Federal Reserve pivot is going to be good for stocks or bad for stocks. They are going to compare to history to show us how historically have Federal Reserve pivots fared for stocks? Have they been good? Have they been bad? Are there different types of pivots? Hint, yes. And what kind of pivot could we be facing? Before we talk about the JP Morgan analysis on a pivot, though, I have to remind you of something important, and that is Costco. What has Kevin been banging the table on for, well, basically all year and basically the last six months? Kevin has been banging the table about this idea that we are going to see a massive slowdown in staples and that stocks that have performed very well with uh, uh, the consumer staple stocks that have performed very well, the McDonald's, the Costco's, the Johnson & Johnson are likely to suffer as their sales will likely plummet and their margins will get squeezed. Well, folks, it has finally happened. These Costco failure has begun. And this is not to bag on Costco. Costco is a phenomenal company. They have brilliantly figured out how to make money. And I mean brilliantly figured out how to make money. They know they don't make money off of selling food. In fact, if you go to uh, some of their earnings statements, that's an older one. Finding, uh, let me see here. 
If we go to an earnings statement from Costco, an older one that I have handy here, what do we find? We find that the vast majority of their bottom line comes from membership revenues. They make about 10% on the crap they sell you and about 98% on the memberships that they have, which when you then look at the bottom line, the net income uh, before taxes for Costco uh, in Feb, uh, for the 12 weeks ending Feb 12, 2023, was sitting at about $1.98 billion. Of that, about a billion so more than half came from membership revenues because the margins are so high on the membership revenues. So it's, it, it shouldn't be surprising that Costco has brilliantly figured out how to make money off of you. It is not on the stuff. It is on the membership. That is what makes this company wildly profitable. It is just like McDonald's. McDonald's doesn't actually make the bulk of their money on selling you McNuggets. They make the bulk of their money by selling McDonald's owners, known as franchisers, McNuggets. That's how McDonald's makes most of their money, substantially. Unfortunately, these flight-to-safety staple stocks are getting hit. And I want to start with this by telling you that, in my opinion, this is where stocks get hit the worst and the hardest before I tell you about the J.P. Morgan piece, which the J.P. Morgan piece on the Fed pivot is mind-blowing. But what just happened? Take a look at this. Costco sales. Once you take out uh, foreign exchange and gas benefits, e-commerce sales in the last five weeks, folks, negative 12.7%. That is, if you now take inflation off of that, they're down like 20% on e-commerce. But then again, e-commerce for Costco. Come on. Okay, fine. Let's ignore e-commerce. Well, now you're down 1.5% in the U.S., down 2.4% in Canada. Add inflation in, guess what? You're down about 10% inflation adjusted in real terms in the last five weeks in Canada. In the last 31 weeks, or Canada and the U.S., in the last 31 weeks, you're also on a real basis, that is inflation adjusted basis, negative. If you don't provide uh, the uh, uh, the um, adjustment for foreign exchange and gas, what we find is that the five weeks ending April 2nd saw an increase of only half of a percent from last year. They're basically flat. There is no growth left at Costco. Even with inflation, there is no growth left. So what gets hit next? What gets hit next is nothing other than margin. That's the way it works. Margin gets hit next. Now, beyond this, we need to talk about this J.P. Morgan recession piece because it's huge. J.P. Morgan is basically telling you, as soon as possible, you should hedge for the Fed pivot that is approaching because guess what? It is a problem and you should be prepared for the Fed pivot. But wait a minute, what Fed pivot? Because Kevin, aren't there different types of Fed pivots? Yes, and in this segment, we are going to talk about those particular pieces. Now, I want to be very, very clear. We have to remember that there is a 69% off coupon code for the programs on Building Your Wealth linked down below. That makes me very happy when you check it out because it is what enables me to come back every single day. And it is what makes me frantically look for content updates 
every single day and quality information like this. So if you like what you're about to hear, think about how you can get an expansion of this. Lifetime access to not just the lectures on Building Your Wealth, but the course member live streams. Link down below, and you're guaranteed the best price going forward. So what do we have here? Well, we have market-implied Fed rate expectations showing the market is expecting a pivot to be delivered over the next two to three meetings by the Federal Reserve. Looking at market performance around previous Fed cuts suggests that near-term upside is limited if market-implied timing is correct. Post-cuts, markets have sold off strong if cuts were delivered ahead of recessions, while markets performed well if cuts were delivered preemptively and managed to re-accelerate growth. From today's point of view, it's hard to construct a sustainable bull case. And further downside appears more likely. We believe the case for putting on hedges in this juncture is very strong, especially if these are funded by shorting upside. That's called selling calls, by the way. Thus, which you learn about in the Stocks and Sight group, by the way. Thus, reflecting the asymmetrical risk we see in near-term equity markets. Okay, fantastic. Now, what does this mean? Okay, let me try to simplify this very quickly. So here's what this means. There are two different types of pivots. And this is very important to understand because I have been pounding the table over the Fed pivot for the last six months. And I've been yelling at this idea about there's a difference between the Fed pivot and the Fed U-turn. And today, folks, J.P. Morgan finally, 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 somebody else acknowledged that there are two different types of pivots. I am so grateful that finally somebody has acknowledged that there is a different type of pivot. Because what I keep seeing on YouTube is this moronic chart that doesn't show you that there are two types of pivots. This is the only chart you see. This is the only chart. It shows Fed pivot and then a big minus sign. But they forget the U-turn pivots. And so I've obviously made many videos talking about how the U-turns are blatant. U-turns are actually where these little X's are, these green X's. And the U-turns tend to mark a bottom in stocks, which means stocks rally after the U-turn. So what's the difference between a pivot and a U-turn? Well, thank the Lord, finally, Somebody, and this somebody being J.P. Morgan, has put together a phenomenal piece to explain it to us. Now, I'm going to read their piece first to you. After I read their piece to you, I am going to translate it to English. But I think both of them are very important, okay? So, we believe the upcoming Fed meeting on May 3rd or on June 14th could turn out to be a pivotal moment for the near-term direction of markets. So, in other words, Expect an inflection point coming to markets very, very soon. This is going to be important. Okay. Market implied rates are showing a 45% probability of rate hikes or an 11% basis point uh, hike for May. Okay, we can't hike by 11 BP, but when they say that, that's just what, what the average is, right? So they're basically saying 45% times 0.25 is about 11. That's roughly what they're trying to say here, Okay. The cuts from July onward uh, would then occur with the market pricing in 2.6 cuts by the year end. JP Morgan thinks there's going to be a hike of 25 basis points in May before the potential pivot starting as soon as June or July. JP Morgan is expecting 200,000 jobs in the jobs report tomorrow. Fine, that doesn't matter so much. Now, Powell has indicated in March 
a dovish shift would not be a reflection of conviction around inflation dynamics, but a recognition that tighter credit conditions could contribute to slowing growth. So I wrote on this. I'm torn on that. I actually do not think the Federal Reserve will pivot at all, ever, until inflation is convincingly on the path down. That is very clear to me. It's very clear to me because the Federal Reserve is necessitating that inflation expectations remain low. By the way, unemployment claims uh, just coming out now, unemployment claims coming in at 228. That is above the survey of 200,000. That suggests a weaker economy. Continuing claims coming in at 1.823 million versus the survey of 1.7 million. Both of these numbers higher than expected. Holy crap. The prior revision, holy crap. The prior revision was now we have the unemployment claims of last month moved from 198K to 246. That is a a massive 25% revision to the prior number. And the continuing claims for the prior month were moved from 1.689 to 1.817 million. In other words, the economy already much weaker than the data is showing, much weaker than the data is showing. That is recessionary news, recessionary news, okay? Recessionary news just out in the midst of recording this. Now, continuing on here, looking past the pivots. Okay, so let me finish the thought here. So finishing the thought on me being torn on this. I don't think the Fed pivots until they are convinced inflation is down. That will be become that will become very, very important when I explain the two different types of pivots using JP Morgan as an aid here. Looking at past pivots suggests that the steep yield curve inversion we are seeing now would have triggered a rate cut already had it not been for this highly unusual inflation. That's important, very important to remember, because what they're saying is, at this point, the yield curve is already so inverted. We are in such a recessionary environment. The Fed has beaten this economy to the ground so heavily. They have taken our neck and driven it into the mud for so long that we are already choking with a lack of oxygen that ordinarily the Fed would have cut by now. So J.P. Morgan can't even get it straight here. On one hand, they're like, well, ordinarily they would have cut by now, but they're not cutting because inflation is high. Exactly. This is why this dovish shift has everything to do with inflation dynamics. So J.P. Morgan kind of contradicting themselves right here a little bit. Uh, but that's just my opinion. But then again, I, 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 I like to uh, add criticism and commentary. The reason we expect a strong risk-off reaction in June if the Fed does not indicate a pivot is that the Fed may have already over-tightened, increasing the likelihood of a deep recession. All right. So the first lesson that you need to take away from this JPM piece, the first thing that you need to take away, we're going to go through this order. So actually, I should say, first, we talked about Costco. That's the weakening of staples. This is why you want to be finding pricing power style stocks. You can learn more about those at meetkevin.com. Pricing power stocks. Meetkevin.com to learn more about those. Uh, Then you're going to learn about uh, the JP Morgan argument that if the Fed does not pivot by June, markets price in a more severe recession. This is actually compounded by data that we just got minutes ago about unemployment claims. We use UI, even though that stands for unemployment insurance. That tends to be a a way the government refers to unemployment. But anyway, all right. 
So that means potentially over-tightening, right? So that's over-tightening, okay? But you're going to learn something else now. So J.P. Morgan assumes a lag time of six months. This suggests we have only seen about half of the pain of rate hikes. Now, I want you to think about that from a banking crisis point of view. From a banking crisis point of view, we have only seen half uh, of the rate hikes, about 2.5%, which means the banking crisis or uh, the crimp on economy, on, on the economy, could be just 50% progressed. Now, in fairness, uh, worth sort of hedging this on the banking crisis side, banking crisis does, though, benefit from lower T-yields. Uh, and those T-yields have been falling, which helps prevent a continuation of the banking crisis. That's why, in my opinion, we haven't actually seen the banking crisis continue and more banks defaulting because bonds have risen. Remember, bonds rise in price when yields fall. Just, just remember that bottom line right there. We, we don't have to fully explain it right now. Uh, okay, good. So there's going to be a, more. There, there's a lot in this piece, okay? Uh, by the way, a shout out to StreamYard. Uh, StreamYard's really cool. They're letting me stream this in a hotel right now. Uh, not only that, but I'll be able to edit this video using the StreamYard platform later. It's really cool. So not only can you record video with it, you throw up banners, throw up the little ticker at the bottom that you see. I could throw up comments as well. Like there's somebody here watching on Strip. Oh, sorry, not Strip. On on Twitch, uh, Chillixt says, I'm in the hospital watching. Well, I hope you recover whatever your problem is. And now you're sending a, a little prince emoji. Fantastic. So anyway, check out House, um, sorry, StreamYard by going to metkevin.com slash StreamYard. Paid promotion there. So what do we have here? We have the lag time. Uh, then we have talk about commercial real estate losses, potentially $350 to $400 billion of commercial real estate losses, which would approach the level of losses seen in the great financial crisis. But that's not even the fun part. Ready for the fun part? This is the fun part. This is, this is a lot. I urge you to buckle up. I'm going to make this as simple as possible. And so if somebody says, highlight me, bro, I will do that. <laughs> All right. Buckle up. But this could be the most important video that you watch on the Fed pivot. And if somebody once again comes and starts complaining and saying stocks are definitely going to go down in the Fed pivot, I'm going to choke them and I'm going to make them get life insurance and then I'm going to choke them. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, anyway, all right, listen to this. Actually, I'm going to make this a little simpler. You see this chart, okay? This chart says that in the blue line, stocks go up after the Fed pivot. Where is the Fed pivot? It's right here in the middle. See where I put the P? Fed pivot. F-P. Fed pivot. Middle. Okay? So that means there's an inflection point here and here. Let's actually draw that in green. Here and here is where the inflection point is. Right where the Fed pivot is. So why is it that on one hand, stocks go up? And in the other Fed pivot, stocks go down. What's the difference? Again, this could potentially be the most important video you watch on understanding the Fed pivot. Let's explain it using JP Morgan's words, then I will use my own. By January of 2024, the market is expecting 3.5 rate cuts or 85 basis points of rate cuts. 
a JP, as JP Morgan macro strategist pointed out, if the Fed had cut rates at the speed it was cutting because the economy had already entered into a recession in 1990, 2001, and 2007, when it started easing as a reaction to market stress or mild slowdowns uh, in 87, 89, 95, 98, growth eventually picked up. Okay, I'm going to translate this because this is complicated. Basically, they're saying the Fed pivoted once in 90, 2001, and 2007. Then you had these different Fed pivots. We're going to talk about those in a moment. And they hear, they talk about there's a distinction between the pivots. There's a mid-cycle pivot or a pre-recession pivot. And both of those lead to different reactions in the market. So pre-cycle and mid-cycle. Okay, let's start here with this. Pre-recession, a pre-recession pivot is the typical pivot people talk about. A pre-recession pivot is bad. This is when the Fed has lost control. Lost the lead. This is when the Fed has no control. When the Fed has lost control, it means they have over-tightened. And because they have over-tightened, and the Fed has once again screwed up, and they have lost control, the Fed may actually have created a recession without conquering inflation, which ultimately is the worst case scenario. A pre-recession pivot is bad. So a PRP is actually this red line here. In a PRP, stocks go down. In a pre-recession pivot, stocks go down. However, in a mid-cycle pivot, in other words, Kevin's U-turn, which I've been banging the table about for actually since January of 2022. Since January of 2022, I've been saying, wait for the Fed U-turn. The Fed U-turn will be glorious. The Fed U-turn has happened in 87, in 89, as they mentioned, in the 90s during the soft landing. But more importantly, it happened in 87, 2003, and 2009. The Fed U-turn is what you want. The Fed U-turn is the Fed saying, okay, basically, we're going to turn the money printers on because we have the end of the tightening cycle is here. We may have tightened too far. Inflation has been conquered. And because inflation is conquered, we are going to turn the money printers on like crazy and prevent a nasty recession. We are going to cut bigly, and we're going to go back to quantitative easing. Okay? That then leads to the following chart. In a U-turn scenario, in three months after a U-turn scenario, stonks, my friends, stonks go up. Almost every sector of stocks goes up after a Fed U-turn, which is a mid-cycle pivot. However, almost every sector of the stock market goes down in a pre-recession pivot. This is the most important distinction, and I think probably one of the most important videos, uh, and that's why it will feature every single sponsor that Kevin can possibly think about, from 12 free stocks with Weeble by going to metkevin.com slash free. Phenomenal platform. From life insurance you can get in as little as five minutes by going to metkevin.com slash life. And of course, StreamYard, how I stream this video, metkevin.com slash stream. So what do we know about this? 
Well, what we know about this is the following. J.P. Morgan and their opinion is that we are actually more likely to see a pre-recession rate cut. In other words, J.P. Morgan is taking the bearish point of view. J.P. Morgan does not believe inflation will be solved timely. So let's go to our conclusion page here. Okay. So let's zoom out on the conclusion page. Let's do number four. J.P. Morgan believes we are going to get a pre-recession pivot, the bad pivot. That's bad for pretty much all stocks. And it's likely if the Fed does not control inflation, that would be bad. It's the stagflationary recession, higher for longer. It's painful. Stay in cash. Uh, yeah, protect yourself. Okay. Then there is the other potential. This is the Kevin belief. Okay. So it's either JP Morgan or Kevin here. Okay. If you believe them, maybe we can still have a cup of coffee together. But if you believe me, we can go skiing together. All right. Kevin believes. You know, I do flip-flop a lot, but I think on really important things, I don't. Uh, I have maintained, Kevin has believed since January of 2022 that a massive Fed U-turn will come as soon as inflation proves transitory. Okay, we're still just now in that process. Labor inflation is basically gone. Look at any earnings call from Chipotle, Starbucks, Uber, Lyft, Darden, uh, McDonald's, any of the recent earnings calls, Cloudflare that we've been looking at in terms of, uh, of, of, of people actually earning wages. Wages have capped. Wage growth is slowing substantially. Inflation is going to go away. The substantial uh, supply chain shortages that we had are going to turn into massive supply chain gluts. A glut, by the way, is uh, is a massive amount of uh, of, uh, of, of of supply. Uh, someone here commented, "Hey, and you're a mod too. That's it. You're demodded because you have a different opinion than me." I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. It's fine. Somebody here writes, two year experience, Kevin. Hey, man, that's an insult. It's like 13 years. Okay, come on, man." Okay, 13 years of experience versus a 100-year-old JPM. All right. Let's make this let let's let's just uh let's just make a comparison over here, okay? You ready for this comparison? January of 2022. Kevin meets with JPM strategists for dinner. Those strategists include people who used to work at the Fed. Kevin says, "We are Going into recession, I'm selling. Bye. Uh, JPM says, we see a 15% chance of recession. <laughs> okay. That was January of 2022. Actually happened. I have proof. <laughs> Actually happened. Uh, I had a fight over that dinner table. And I was the only person pounding the table going, you need to wait for the Fed U-turn, basically. Okay. Now there's a chance the stock market may bottom before the U-turn because the U-turn is so clearly uh, established now. But the point is that was my opinion in January of 2022. I was very clear about that. 
I've always been very clear about that. And my opinion has not changed on that. Okay. I just believe the bottom will come before the actual U-turn this cycle, uh, just based on my estimations now. Yeah, I could be wrong. Now, Kevin is saying, yes, still recession, shallow recession, but shallow. But we will have the Fed U-turn because inflation proves to be transitory. JP Morgan is saying, okay, fine. Yes, we're going to go into a recession, but inflation won't be transitory. So pick your side. Pick your side. It's totally fine. Like, I still, I still like you. Uh, and, and, and like, I mean, I went to Peter Schiff's house. What do you think Peter Schiff uh, uh, thinks about all of this? I mean, I think it's obvious. You could watch the interview. So I think it's very obvious that people have different opinions and you could still get along with other people. But let's be very clear. This is what we're looking ahead at. Either a U-turn or a pivot. It's very simple. And if you want my perspectives first, make sure you join those programs on Building Your Wealth. I get regular emails of people say, Kevin, I watch you every day because you give me so many trade ideas and I made so much money listening to your content, uh, whether it's in the course member lives or, or otherwise. And so thank you and shout out to those people. Uh, obviously no guarantees. I mean, yes, I'm a licensed financial advisor, but I can't give you personalized financial advice. I can't do it for you. I could do it for you. I, dang, you know, we'd all be rich. Um, but, uh, but I could definitely share my insights as much as possible. So uh, let's, let's just put a conclusion on this because I think it's, it's pretty, pretty powerful. JP Morgan, finally, after a year, we finally have an institution responding to this fraudulent argument that the pivot only exists in a bad direction. Finally, finally, we have the realization that there are two forms of a pivot. I've been screaming it for months and finally, we have institutional analysis on it. Thank God. Oh, you know what we should do? Let's do a quick poll. Uh, I think this would be really cool. So what we're going to do is we are going to poll the live audience now. Remember, I like to stream daily. I, I really try my hardest to start at 4.20 a.m. Pacific time. I am usually late, but that is my goal. I'm going to now run a poll to those of you in the audience. You turn positive uh or uh let's do fed u-turn good for stocks or prp pre-recession pivot bad bad for stocks pr pivot uh u-turn let's run a poll and in about a minute i'm only going to give about 60 seconds to see what your thoughts are on the poll the poll is live now go to the chat Answer the poll question. I don't mind taking the L if I'm if if I'm wrong, but at least I'll give you my opinion. Uh, so uh, again, uh, I'm convinced that inflation is coming down. I am also convinced that the Fed has overtightened. I am also convinced that the Fed is probably going to go with the 25 basis point uh, hike. I believe the Fed is going to keep doing that because I I believe this. Okay, I'm going to pretend to be Jay, Jay Powell. Uh, and, uh, and then we're going to go through the poll results. Okay. Ready? If I'm Jay Powell, this is my opinion. And this is not going to sound anything like Jerome Powell, but I'm going to use, I don't know, probably a Donald Trump voice or something like that, because it's funny to me. It doesn't have to be funny to you. I'm Jay Powell. And ooh, I know we have to keep inflation expectations anchored. So I'm just going to keep saying that there's upside risk and, um, we're going to just uh, do another hike uh, because psychologically we're going to get to 5%. And then once we're at 5%, uh, 
uh, we'll, we'll have bought lots of time, and we'll have hopefully gotten lots of reports to convince us that inflation is down, and then maybe we'll pause. But after we pause, we can never go up again because we don't want to repeat the mistakes of the 70s or 80s. Uh, we don't want to Aaron Burr markets. And we technically don't want to Paul Volcker markets because I want my face on Mount Rushmore. And if I could stick a soft landing, I will go down as a hero. So therefore, as Jerome Powell, I would uh, really like inflation to be transitory. But I'm going to trick people into thinking I'm going to hike us into oblivion. But I'm basically just going to cut rates on Sunday 5% to zero and, uh, and, and, and we'll go back to the moon. All right, that's that's my take. Terrible, terrible impression. Uh, it's that's okay. All right, now the results of the poll. Uh, out of six thousand of you watching, only eight hundred and nine of you voted. What are you doing? Are you sitting on the toilet, like unable to push a button? It's fine. I respect you anyway. I understand people turn me on just to listen to me. Ooh. All right, you turn sixty percent. Pre-recession pivot, bad for stocks. 39% out of 820 votes. Okay, pretty good. I'm sure that's statistically significant. So, all right, that ends the J.P. Morgan recession piece. And my thoughts on J.P. <laughs> all right, uh, we've got more to cover. Oh, man, we got the time again. Ow. <sighs> Powell or Trump. It's just bad. That's what it is. It's just bad. I don't even know what it is. I'm I'm not a I'm not a, 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 a I'm not good at accents. I think what happens is like you could start an accent well, but keeping it long is hard. It starts decaying. Uh, I, I my favorite is German. Yeah, ich bin Deutsch, <laughs> und I am very happy. No, that's not even very good. Uh, but I'm German, so I'm allowed to make fun of the German accent. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, the next topic that we have to cover is, uh, oh, ooh. Ooh, ooh. uh, okay. So we have, uh, two, two more big stories that we have to cover. Uh, one, we have to give my obviously, uh, excellent perspectives on the Trump situation, uh, because there are a lot of attorneys talking about it that I think are wrong. They're missing the boat. They're really – a lot of people I think are missing the boat. And then we're going to talk about deflation. Okay, you ready for those? Uh, keeping it long is hard. <laughs> oh, the comments, the comments. Okay. So, yeah. All right. So the next piece is uh, – I'm going to keep this brief on Trump. Give me like eight minutes, please. And uh, then we're going to get into the deflation piece, which I think is very important as well. Uh, but I think both are important. All right. All right, here we go. Oh, that's the wrong button. Stand by for Kevin to figure out the right button. <laughs> Where did I put it? Oh, there it is. All right. Uh, 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 uh. 
Well, folks, everyone has an opinion about the Trump indictment, lawyers and non-lawyers alike, and I've heard a lot of the opinions. I've read almost every single op-ed piece on this, and I am very surprised that almost everybody seems to be missing an extremely obvious and the most dangerous argument against Donald Trump. I'm going to talk about that after I quickly summarize where we stand so I can save you as much time as possible so we can minimize the amount of time that we have to talk about Donald Trump and we can go back to learning how to build wealth. So first, where do we stand? And then second, what is everybody missing? Because there's a very key argument that everybody is missing. Bragg told us about it and everybody is missing. He didn't highlight it very well. And that's because, quite frankly, I think Bragg doesn't know how to put together a very good legal case. I think he's throwing spaghetti against the wall. But there's a piece of spaghetti that might actually stick. So, first, where do we stand? Ooh, here it comes. Sean Connery. <laughs> Stand by. <laughs> All right, here we go. On the left, people say, this is the left. Okay, I'm going to I'm have to signpost this every time. On the left, people say, Donald Trump paid $30,000 to pay off the National Enquirer, who ended up paying off a doorman who had a story alleging that Donald Trump had a child from an affair. That child part of the story, we don't know if it's true or not. The left says that Donald Trump then paid $150,000 and another $130,000 to silence two women with whom which he cheated, which of course he denies. The left is arguing that justice is now finally being served, that no one is above the law. And don't worry, even though Manhattan 76 to 78 percent of the time, Hillary Biden votes Democratic, we are confident Donald Trump will get a fair election. The left also says that New York City is the financial capital of the world, so we must prosecute financial crimes. In fact, in a New York Times, which obviously leans left, opinion editorial by the former chief assistant district attorney who leans left for Manhattan and the left-leaning special counsel, which means attorney, to the House Judiciary Committee on the first impeachment trial against Trump, which means they lean left. They just wrote an op-ed saying, hey, come on. Donald Trump is the 30th person we are prosecuting this year for falsifying documents. So don't worry. This is not a political witch hunt. This is just what we do. That's what the left is saying, okay? The, uh, the right is saying the following. The statute of limitations has expired, although some New York state laws have actually potentially extended those statutes of limitations. Then they say this is a political witch hunt. And quite frankly, it probably is not a political witch hunt anymore. It is now a witch trial. Yeah, okay. So it's a witch hunt that has evolved into a witch trial. Others say, the state can't prosecute this. Donald Trump was a federal candidate. Some people who are a little bit more torn, like the left-leaning economists, say this is a very weak case. Not only is this a weak case, but it creates more divisiveness in America. It casts more doubt on the judicial system by Republicans. And the economist calling this a mistake is not even an American publication. They're from England. The Wall Street Journal, a, and they're left-leaning. The Wall Street Journal, a right-leaning paper, calls this a, quote, novel interpretation, to which, of course, the left-leaning opinion editorialists in the New York Times say, this is not novel, this is normal. Even CNN says this is super weak. Thanks, Sean McGuire. Statement of facts, okay? It's important. The statement of facts, 
basically a whole strung together story about how Donald Trump, at least in part, knew that he was paying people off. In fact, in a surreptitiously recorded statement, Donald Trump asked if he should pay $150,000 in cash, essentially to pay off woman number one, who is Karen McDougal. She was a Playboy model. She was once deemed number two to Pamela Anderson. In other words, she's very attractive. Good for her. Donald Trump, instead of paying cash, ultimately settled for paying in check because that's what Michael Cohen, who now has turned on Donald Trump, recommended. And Michael Cohen has gone to jail, to prison, for being convicted of campaign finance violations. So these are the arguments we hear. We hear the statement of facts. We don't have to rehash all of this. We know this. The last thing I'd like to say, uh, and then I want to get into what everybody is missing. The last thing is just a reminder that this is a, an argument being made about the potential violation of a misdemeanor or by violating the uh, falsifying of business records. That is a misdemeanor crime. But when it is used in a way to cover up another crime, that misdemeanor elevates to a Class E felony, the lowest available felony, which Manhattan has a history of uh, demoting 50% of their felonies to misdemeanors and then only convicting 50% of the remaining felonies, which means they only have about a 25% felony conviction rate. With that said, I'm going to accuse you some good odds for Donald Trump. With that said, obviously, the argument is being made that this case is about hush money payments. The problem is hush money payments are not necessarily fraudulent in themselves. Hush money payments are not against the law in themselves. If an employee leaves your company and they could potentially talk crap about you because you make racist jokes in the locker room, then it is okay to say, hey, if you agree not to say anything about the company, would you be willing to take $10,000 and sign an agreement to that fact? That is normal. That is what happens every single day in America. However, Mr. Bragg makes the argument that these hush money payments are actually defrauding voters. That is a very important. It is still not, though, the argument that everyone is missing. That's because the argument that hush money payments defraud voters is weak. I'm going to explain why it is weak. First, it does not defraud anyone of money or property. That makes it almost a potential victimless crime. Now, the argument can be made that, no, 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 Kevin, the voters are the victims. The voters are the victims because Donald Trump conspired to promote his candidacy via unlawful means, covering up the fact that he hid disclosures that should have been made to voters. They, sh they had a right to know about those cover-ups, and they did not. Had they, maybe Donald Trump would not have become president, okay? That's the argument. But that argument is potentially weak. It's weak because Donald Trump could easily say, I didn't cover up those stories because of politics. Those stories would have gotten me more votes. Prove otherwise, I would have looked like a top G, and I would have gotten more votes had people known I got to have sex with the number two playboy model of the 90s. That's an argument he could make. So his defense could very simply be, I wanted to cover up the story because I didn't want my wife to know about these potential affair rumors, which I didn't have the affair, but I wouldn't want my wife to think there was even a chance of them. That is the easiest defense Donald Trump can have here, okay? But 
Listen to this. And then we're going to move back to talking finance. Listen to this. This is the big piece of the puzzle that's missing. Alvin Bragg threw a piece of spaghetti against the wall that I think is very strong. He threw a piece of spaghetti against the wall. And there is a weakness to it, but it is strong. He referenced the fact that it is possible Michael Cohen and Donald Trump falsified tax filings. That, folks, is a crime in the state of New York. Now you don't even have to worry about federal law. You don't even have to worry that Donald Trump was not a state candidate. He was a federal candidate. You don't even have to worry about that. You just have to worry about, is it possible that the falsification of business records helps cover up phony tax filings? That piece of spaghetti, I think, is the potential Achilles heel for Donald Trump. Now, I still don't think that is very strong because here's how I would potentially argue Defending that, you could make the argument that, listen, Donald Trump simply said, I paid Michael Cohen, call it $300,000. And if with that $300,000, he decided he wanted to make a business expense and pay off Stormy Daniels and uh, Karen McDougal and pay off uh, a doorman, then maybe he did that in the duty of his job. That was his decision. He went to jail for that. That was not my decision. I did not guide him to do that. That was all him. That's Donald Trump's defense here. But Alvin Bragg can take a jurisdictional argument on the case of fraud of the tax system. That is probably the strongest piece that Bragg has. Let me quickly draw this. And then we're going to end the Trump segment because people keep telling me, Kevin, you're a financial advisor. Talk finances. Pitch us on your courses on building your wealth link down below or life insurance you can get in as little as five minutes or 12 free stocks. You know, Give us your paid promotions. Don't talk politics. That's what people keep telling me, but I'm going to do it anyway. So what do I have over here? Because I think I have a good point. Watch this, okay? If this is Trump's business right here and Trump hires employees. Well, employees sit within the company, correct? Well, by definition, independent contractors are not employees of the business. If Michael Cohen has a business here and Donald Trump pays for legal services, for whatever those services may be, if those legal services go to Michael Cohen, those legal services, call it what you want, they are Income. They are income. Michael Cohen was an independent contractor. Though That is income for legal services. Simple. If Michael Cohen decided then to spend that money on prostitutes for himself, he could do that. If he decided to spend that money on hush money for Stormy Daniels, woman one, woman two, uh, uh, you know, uh, doorman, he can do that. If he thinks that's going to help do a better job for Donald Trump, he can do that. If he thinks buying a private jet with Donald Trump's money helps, he can do that. Now, Donald Trump might look and go, you're fired because you're wasting money and you're not performing. But all of these things would be the decision of Michael Cohen. And that is the defense that Donald Trump would have to go with, that there is a decisional barrier here, that Donald Trump is basically saying, look, you run the show. It's on you. Whatever decisions you make as an independent contractor are your responsibility. That's probably the best defense here. 
because that kills the tax fraud argument, in my opinion. Now, stand by for the close of this video. Look, obviously, this, whether you are left or right, is a politically motivated uh, uh, attack. Democrats are loving this. Republicans are loving this too. Because Donnie T is getting more airtime and more donations than ever before. Donnie T, before this indictment, was sitting in a corner. Nobody was paying attention to Donnie T. People were like, ooh, Nikki Haley. Ooh, Ronnie D. Ooh, Gavin Newsom. What do you have now? Donnie everywhere. Everyone's talking about Donnie. So if you're a Democrat and you're happy about this indictment, even though this is probably just going to end up as a stupid misdemeanor, even if Donald Trump gets convicted and he's going to get a slap on the wrist fine, it's not going to be mean. It's going to be meaningless. If anything, it's just going to propel him into the presidency, not get him away from the presidency. Democrats, I'm sorry. You should not be cheering that this happened. Republicans should probably be the ones cheering that this has happened because it basically put Donald Trump back at the top for them. Just saying. That's just the reality of it. I don't have a horse in this race. I don't really care. I just want to provide insight in the middle. I ran for governor in California. I ran as somebody who was in the middle, 51-49. And we really don't need to go into what direction that 1% is because it really just doesn't matter. I was so far in the middle. I called myself, I'm not going to say it, but I called myself, JFK style. That's what I'll, I'll, I'll limit it there. Anyway, okay? Very, very in the middle. I lost. I almost got a million votes and I won San Francisco, but I still lost. And that's why I'm here still making wonderful YouTube videos. Although I think I would have still made YouTube videos in office. Um, I would have figured it out. But anyway, that's my take. I hope you enjoyed my take on Donnie T. Now we got some other things to talk about. Thank you very much. All right. So that was fun. That took about 14 minutes. I apologize. I said it would be eight minutes. It was 14. Good Lord. Oh, man. I don't know. I think it's fun. Like, I, I think it's it's very insightful. Okay, now we got to talk about inflation. Inflation. Oh, God. Where is it? <sighs> Hold on. I have to airdrop the little piece to myself. Uh-oh. We have two pieces to cover here. Uh, one of the pieces is going to take a moment longer to get. So what we're going to do in the meantime is we're going to listen to CNBC while I figure it out. I hope it's not on ad. I hate ads. Other sectors. Mm. And if it's the last man standing, it's going to... Oh, it's lagging. ...create vulnerabilities for the indices. Okay. That would, in normal times, be very good analysis. There's a revolution going on in tech, uh, which is that whatever you were, it, it's like when they discovered the cloud, when they discovered the PC. This artificial intelligence, it doesn't matter. You're, you're sitting down with people and you're saying, listen, I can't cut my spending on cybersecurity. That's an issue. But everything else, I just want people fired because the machines are better than people. Now, I know that sounds absolutely crazy, but it happened so quickly that... Look, NVIDIA just did it, okay? Google had this false comparator that compared against the previous right, right. previous card. That was actually a shame that Google did that because it showed me that that's not the Google I know. 
You mean you think they were being disingenuous by choosing an, an older thing to compare themselves to? Yeah, that was, and they put it out before the survey came out. And I want the old Google back. I well, do. You see Pete Chai in the journal today? Yeah. Basically okay. saying, uh, we forget what the actual have, quote is. Well, but nobody's he's, saying they have to use it. He was asked why they didn't roll it out earlier. And he says, we were working on it, but the moment came sooner than we thought. Okay, so okay, so uh, let me ask you, Mr. Pinchai, who's really 10 times richer than me, if not 100. Um, Jensen Wong was talking about this at NVIDIA for 18 months. He said it would happen, it would cross over. Well, why didn't, did he need Sam Altman? Did he really need ChatGPT to recognize that this was occurring? I mean, and it was, he was screaming through the rooftops. I remember when, when Jensen had me make the Saison Seascape. I said, listen, I want someone who does still life and I want to seascape from him. He said, okay, here, and it comes out. Like, he was doing this and people thought it was a parlor game. People thought that Jensen was involved in a parlor game where it just, it was just something really funny. It was a card trick. It was, he was the blame of artificial intelligence. No, this thing. Okay, hold on. We are going to pause on Jimbo here. We're going to go to something else. All right, hold on. Uh... There we go. Okay, let's get this started. Let's see if I can figure this out. It's a little problematic this morning, but I will figure it out because this is a fantastic piece. It is so good, so juicy, so delicious. We must talk about it. We must. All right. Uh, somebody in the comments yesterday, I was so offended. Somebody in the opposite, or somebody in the comments yesterday said, Kevin. Just cherry picks data to uh, promote his Nike swoosh thesis. And I'm like, what? Every single day, I feel like I'm like, here's the bull case. Here's the bear case. I'm really trying to do both. I really am. <laughs> oh, well. All right. All right. All right. All right. Let's do this. And is it this button? Oh, hold on. You may need to get my button correct. Once I have my button, we will go ahead and start. The balance sheet is very robust. Yes. Yes, it is. I am Adani. The Adani companies are very strong. <laughs> oh, God. The jokes, the memes. <laughs> okay. Here we go. Who's ready? Who's ready for inflation? Let's do it. Uh, boring. Call that segment boring. And then we're going to call this. Right, here we go. Well, folks, the conditions for deflation are here. And, well, now we have a really fascinating new piece on supply chain gluts. We also have a piece from the Wall Street Journal on equity risk premia, which is very, very bearish, but I'm going to provide a counter argument to it. I'm going to provide both pieces of information in this segment. Remember, April 12th is CPI Day. Mark your calendar for that. Tomorrow is Jobs Friday. That is April 7th. Mark your calendar for that. And mark your calendar for prices going up on the courses on Building Your Wealth for April 12th. With that said, let's jump into... This piece right here. It's a phenomenal piece by, yes, CNBC. Now, I rarely have CNBC pieces on the channel, but this one was just too good not to be featured here. 
It says, inflation's inventory gluts are here to stay and will hit bottom lines in the weaker economy. Yes, yes. How many times have we talked about people, companies are going to take it in the M, in the margin? A lot. All right. Bloated warehouse inventories are an expensive... Uh, hold on a second here. Why, why does this not share this tab? Stop sharing. Share this tab. Here we go. Uh-oh. It doesn't scroll. What kind of crap is this? Oh. Oh, I, I, I figured it out. Hold on. I have to remove that one. Add this. Oh, there we go. <laughs> I did it. <laughs> All right. Here we go. So... Bloated warehouse inventories and are expensive pressure eating away at the bottom line of many companies. And for many, the excess supply and associated costs of storage will not abate this year. In other words, companies are going to take it in, a mar in the margin. But wait a minute. If the excess costs of storage are still going up, isn't that inflationary? Not necessarily. Listen in. Just over 36% of companies that were surveyed by CNBC's supply chain survey said they expect inventories to return to normal in the second half of this year, with an equal percent expecting supply gluts until 2024. Supply gluts, my friends, supply gluts are deflationary. Yeah, yeah, 21%. Now say a return to normal can occur in the first half of the year, and then another 15% expect acti normal activity by 2024. But uncertainty about inventory management is significant, with almost a quarter of supply chain managers saying they're not sure when gluts will be worked off. Remember, excess inventory equals lower prices. Supply up, price down. Simple. Quote, we don't expect significant decreases in inventory levels within our network in 2023, says Paul Harris, the vice president of operations for Warehouse Quote. Several of our manufacturing clients are experiencing dead slash bloated inventory challenges due to overordering in the container gridlock from prior quarters. A majority have elected to keep inventory on hand as opposed to liquidating. Now, that is fair, but eventually... When storage price, and this is this is the 4D chess part you have to think about, okay? So think about it. So far, over the last maybe year or so, inventories have been rising. At the same time as inventories go up, companies are like, well, we don't have to discount just yet. Let's increase inventories. So in other words, uh, inventories go up, warehouses, warehousing goes up is the other thing that goes up, right? So we hoard more inventory as supply chains smooth out. Now we fill up the silos. Think about it like having a farm, okay? You're a farmer and you're farming corn and you just went from not having enough corn to having way too much corn. Now you have way too much corn and you're like, okay, well, I'm not gonna dump it on the market. I'm not gonna reduce prices yet. What am I going to do instead? I am going to fill up my silos. I'm going to take my corn. I'm going to fill up my silos. And when I fill up my silos, when the price of corn is more desirable, I will slowly trickle it out into the market. That is why we have silos for corn and for nuclear weapons. But this video is about corn and prices, not nukes. Anyway, what happens when the silo fills up? Well, you have a choice. Do you want to build a new expensive silo or just start liquidating? It is a cycle. You have to think about this as a buffer system, kind of like, a, okay, nobody's going to get this reference except for the contractors, but we have those new pressure valves on laundry machines now and new construction. Basically, it's kind of like 
you put a little buffer in. So if you get too much water pressure coming into your water system, rather than getting a water hammer, like when you turn on the water valve and you hear the bum, 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 against the wall, you have a little buffer. It fills up with water and then it buffers. And then as the water pressure falls again, it can flow again, right? Let's draw that in more of a supply chain English here. But, you know, I, I got to respect the contractors as well. So I had to use a contractor analysis. I don't know. The plumbers are probably shaking their heads right now. But I tried, okay? <laughs> anyway, so uh, here you are. You are an outstanding farmer. You know why you're outstanding? Because you're outstanding in your field. Like literally. Okay, I screwed up the joke. Whatever. Uh, <laughs> why is the farmer outstanding? Well, he's out in his field. I don't know. Never mind. So you got a lot of corn. And now you have these silos. Okay, you have a lot more corn than you usually have. You fill up your silo. You're like, hey, I'm not going to lower prices. <laughs> oh, uh oh, uh oh. What do I do now that the silo's full? Well, I could build more or I could just dump onto the market. So, in other words, you're going to sell. You're probably going to sell because it's going to take time for you to build up these silos. So, what does this mean, folks? In English, what does it mean? It means there is a lag. It means that deflation lags, okay? And when we are hearing that prices for warehouses are going up, it means that the cost of storage is going up because the silo is full. When the silo is full, you have a choice. Build more warehouses, but prices are still expensive, so instead you sell. That selling happens with a lag, okay? That in American English, means price going to go down soon, folks. We're going to see some deflation. Okay, it's a good thing. When do you expect inventory levels to return to normal? Well, here you have a chart. Yay. It looks like uh, about 50% of people, actually, oh my gosh, look at this. 64% of people say it's either going to happen in 2024, 2025, or they have no freaking clue. Okay, 64% of this pie has no freaking clue or it's going to happen in 2024 later. In other words, that deflation's coming, boys and girls. A total of 90 logistics firm managers representing the American Apparel and Footwear Association, ITS Logistics Warehouse, quote, and the Council of Supply Chain Management Professionals participated in a survey between March 3rd and March 21st. Oh, during the banking crisis. How fantastic. To provide information on their current inventories and the biggest inflationary pressures they are facing. Okay, so what are the biggest inflationary pressures? Which, yes, they have been passing on to the consumers, but are no longer able to. That, that is limited now. We cannot raise prices anymore. That's why companies take it to the margin now. They used to pass it on to consumers. They used to. What's sitting in warehouses and what companies are doing about it? Logistics experts tell CNBC that 20% of their excess savings sitting in warehouses are not seasonable, seasonal season seasonable whatever slightly more than half of survey participants said they would keep items in warehouses yeah but what happens when those warehouses are full prices of warehousing is going to go up but a little over a quarter said they are selling on the secondary market because inventories impact the company's bottom line through elevated storage prices ding 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 thank you uh somebody just donated 199 to say release the poverty chat um and why are there so many blue people uh, so blue people are course members uh, that I've basically given free chat access to by turning them into mods. 
Uh, I, I, and if you don't have that access yet, I could do that for you. Just tag me in. Uh, and, uh, actually, well, you know what? Wait for the next wave we do that. We'll do another round of that, maybe in the course member live to ask me today. But uh, yeah, a lot of the blue folks are course members, which you could join as well. Link down below. Harris told CNBC, many clients with perishable goods are selling them on the secondary market to avoid destroying products. You have to remember, you can't always just hodl inventory. That's very important. You can't only hodl inventory. The reason you can't only hodl inventory is because eventually inventory goes to crap. It decays. People steal it or it decays. Uh, see, if the secondary market is not an option, they have to destroy the product. If it's a consumable, they're donating the goods and taking tax deductions. Or they should sell it at a, at a loss and basically lower prices. Investors are worried about earnings and margin trends and expect Wall Street to revise lower. Duh, supply chain pressures and high inventory and high costs of carrying inventory will hurt margins. Duh. Almost half said the biggest inflationary pressures they are paying are warehouse costs. Warehouse costs? Look at that. Well, guess how you can lower your warehouse costs? Lower your prices. Duh. Now, ITS Logistics told CNBC that many clients across the industry have been using ocean containers, rail containers, and 30 or 53-foot trailers for storage because distribution centers are full. These charges will start materializing in Q3, Q4 results. In other words, the companies are going to take it in the margin. May as well sell your product. Okay, basically, more and more of this. Approximately what percentage of your increased costs are you passing on to customers? Well, you can see here, about half of the pie says less than 30%. And about uh, 74% says less than 50% is being passed on to customers. That means most companies are taking it in the margin. Very few companies are able to pass it all on to consumers. These are your pricing power companies. Only 20% of companies are saying they're able to pass on 90% to 100% of the cost to their customers. Those are PP companies, companies with massive PP. If you want to know what companies I like with massive PP, you can learn about my ETF by going to meetkevin.com. You can also see my affiliates and all the other good stuff there. Now, I'd like to do a very brief look into what's going on with Wall Street and what equity risk premia are saying. So equity risk premia, according to Wall Street, uh, are something we're going to be able to analyze right Let's see here. Here, I push this button. I push this button. I push this button to remind you about metgiven.com slash StreamYard. So the Wall Street Journal ran a piece this morning suggesting that stocks have not looked this unattractive since 2007. Basically, what they're doing is they're looking at the earnings uh, yield for the S&P 500 versus the 10-year treasury, sitting at around 1.59 percentage points, a low lot not seen since October of 2007. Now, that sounds really scary. When I first read this, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. Like, that is a huge uh, 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 red flag, right? But then I got to thinking about it. And then I put my thinking cap on and I put my logic together. And you want to see what my logic said? My logic said the first thing. First thing my logic said is the S&P 500 is trash. Why is the S&P 500 trash? Because it has a ton of top 50 companies that lack pricing power. As a result, those companies, I expect, are going to take it in the margin like Costco this morning. Okay, They're going to take it in the margin, and they're going to suck at earnings. 
So, of course, forward EPS looks bad for the S&P. And, of course, the S&P looks highly valued. That's why I like pricing power stocks. Number two, of course, treasury yields are high now because inflation is expected to be high now and lower soon. And when it's lower soon, rates, uh, yields will plummet. Just this morning, Bloomberg Intelligence put out, put out a piece and they suggested that uh, 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 the um, SOFR, the secure overnight funding uh, rate, will probably, uh, the market expects it'll go below 3% in 2024. Bloomberg Intelligence thinks it'll actually go to 2% by 2024. In other words, rapid cuts coming once disinflation is proven. So that's my thesis. Obviously, that's where I put my head. That's how I counter. But I mean, this is a bearish, bearish piece. If you want a bearish piece, here you go. Here's the chart. Bears, rejoice. Enjoy. In the meantime, I am going to go talk about my PP, which you, again, can learn more about, along with all my affiliate links by going to meetkevin.com and the courses on building your wealth. Get lifetime access to those. I'm going to the course member live stream now, so I will be enjoying a conversation with course members as much as I love you all. I must leave now. Thank you very much for being here. I love you, and we'll see you soon. Goodbye. And use Buy Now, Pay Later for the programs below. Now, let's try a Halo impression. Gain the lead. Game over.